Welcome back to Coaching Kernan. My name is Dave D'Agostino. I'm here with my co-hosts, Mark, Mark Wiley and Will George. This is episode 61 in total, but this is the sixth installment of A Day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will. This show's taken off. It's straight pitching. It's, um, I guess it's right in the title, Common Sense. We try to keep things real simple, but we deep dive it. It's depth over breadth. And today we have a, a special guest. It's our first repeat guest on the network. Appeared on Real Voices of the Game back in the beginning. Now on the sixth installment of A Day at the Yard. I want to welcome Justin Orenduff back to the show. Uh, Justin, welcome back to the show. We're glad to have you. Been following your program, as you know, uh, with, with DVS and MVP. Look forward to, sh- to you sharing more research that you've done today on the playoffs. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. Always a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah. And um, just for full disclosure, uh, and I'll let Mark introduce Justin's background in, in a minute, but um, full disclosure, Justin's program that he's, he's designed and implemented and engineered, I have all four of my children doing it right now, and it has paid great dividends. And to the audience that's listening with children out there or minor league players or college players, we have a pitcher doing it, a catcher doing it, a shortstop doing it, and a child that hasn't figured out they want to play baseball yet. So all four different reasons to do the program and all paying great dividends. The purpose, obviously, is to let kids and players throw longer, healthier, and amazingly, the velocity picks up when they're not chasing velocity if they do things the right way. So, Justin, we thank you for your program. My kids thank you, and, uh, and I do too because you're making me a smarter dad along the way. Um, and with that, Mark, why don't you introduce Justin's background for our audience? I sure will. And again, we're really glad to have Justin on today. Um, he has he has some expertise in some areas that I think will be really valuable for parents, coaches, and 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 players. Um, to give you the background on, on Justin, he he started out at the University of Wisc- of uh, George Washington University as a freshman, and he dominated with a ten and two record and a one sixty eight. ERA, I guess uh, Virginia Commonwealth must have uh, decided they wanted to go after you, so you transferred to them. You became an All-American and an All-Colonial Athletic Baseball uh, uh, Conference uh, first-team pick. Um, in nineteen in two thousand three, you played for the U.S. Pan Am team in the same rotation as Justin Verlander and Jared Weaver. Uh, two very good major league pitchers. Um, you were drafted in 2004, number one pick for the Los Angeles Dodgers. You spent parts of seven seasons in the Dodger farm system where you had a 577 win percentage and over a strikeout an inning. Um, you started out in A ball, moved to double A, triple A in 2007, 2008. Also played in the Fall League in 2007-2008. Um, ran into some, some injury issues. Uh, tried to pitch through it. Ended up having to retire in 2009. Uh, what's interesting, which we may talk about later, um, is you, you, you went back a couple years later and tried to make another go of it. Um, I looked at the numbers. The numbers weren't too bad but it looked like uh, you probably weren't pleased with the kind of stuff you were throwing and retired a second time. Um, went back, completed your Bachelor of Science in Business at Virginia Commonwealth. Um, 
became an author in 2012 to 2015, was an author at Baseball Rebellion. And uh, 2014, you, you founded your own company, which I think uh, Dave mentioned to everyone. Um, you're president of Delivery Value Systems is, is, is the company that you designed and developed a program with. 2016 to 2022, you were consultant, throwing coordinator, and then director of baseball operations for the United Shore Professional Baseball League, which is what you're, where you're at right now. Um, we're so pleased to have you. Um, I'm really intrigued with your, with your program. Um, I'd like to start off with the first question is, is how you got interested um, in, in evaluating deliveries and, and, and where, you, where you went from there. Sure. And uh, thanks for the introduction there, Mark. Um, and I think, you know, one of the coolest things when I went back to school after retirement and you're kind of that old guy back on campus now. And I, I, one, started to get amazed at just how much time I had without having to play college baseball and do my studies. So part of like my free time was I, I just wanted to try to figure out why some pitchers get hurt and others don't. And uh, if you can imagine one of those like crime scene shows with all the papers up there on the wall, what I started to do was just print out these pictures at that time of, of pitchers. And I just kind of went to baseball reference of who threw the most amount of innings in their career. And I started to just put pictures up on the wall. And over time, you know, if you look at that wall enough, you can just start to see these correlations and movements and positions amongst the best to do it. And, um, you know, during that period of time, I said, okay, well, this is starting to make a little bit of sense. And, you know, unfortunately, I went back and looked at my VCU days and my Dodger days, and I compared, you know, pictures of myself pitching to those pictures on the wall. And uh, I wasn't really close. Um, and as great as I was as a competitor and the success I had, you know, at some point, the arm just wasn't going to hold up. And what we've learned is that we're all in that boat and whether we can achieve 3000 or 4000 innings in a career or, or 400, you know, we all are going to kind of run into kind of a major injury at some point, assuming we pitch forever. So my initial interest was really a product of that, you know, just kind of hypothesis and looking at some things. And, you know, you mentioned my brief comeback and that's kind of when I had this kind of new evidence and I said, well, you know, I might be able to kind of, uh, tinker with some stuff here and go back out and figure it out. But, you know, what I know is I'm just, my shoulder's just too damaged and there was probably no way I could be durable enough in a professional season. Um, but I was still just at the very infancy of what I know now. Um, so that was really kind of, I would say that the birthplace of how I got interested in all this. Justin, was there one particular position, and I know it's all connected, uh, I've spent a lot of time on uh, because of the research you've given me to take a look at that you've done. Is there one particular position that stood out in the pictures you saw initially that is, you know, kind of like the key indicator, the tipping point where you started all this research? Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, being a former Dodger and, you know, just being a part of Dodger Town, I mean, you would just hear the stories about Koufax and just how he was so different. And, you know, one of the things I did was I purchased a Lefty's Legacy and the biography about Koufax. And in that, within the first chapter, you can read from Koufax's words, you know, his views um, and theories on pitching. 
And one of the things that was in there to which we still use as a very simplistic tool to illustrate how the delivery works is a drawing from him. And I had never seen it. It was never introduced to me as a Dodger. And um, but once I saw that drawing, I said, wow, that's different. And then I was able to kind of find footage of him moving and throwing. I said, well, I've never seen anybody do that. And then I started to say, well, why don't we do this? Why isn't this more common? And then you look at like if, if Koufax's movement and, and power was on a scale of 10, then you could have a guy like Whitey Ford who might be on a similar movement pattern, um, but just less force, right? So it's like, well, he's still doing the same level of sequencing. It's not like his mechanics are different. It's just the amount of potential energy that goes into it. And so I said, wow, you know, that's really fascinating for me. So I started to really build upon that foundation. And, um, but everything that he said just made so much sense to me. And, um, but, you know, I think the fascinating thing is, is like when you start to look at really this historical perspective of pitchers who pitch in games, the season (laughs) has basically been the same, right? A number of games and like, no matter how hard you throw or how you do it, there's a level of performance that you kind of have to uphold. And then there is a durability factor that you have to be able to do, especially year after year. And I think that's one of the, the biggest skill sets or characteristics of guys that, you know, we want to look to to kind of provide a pathway of how this could work or should work and some of the best to do it over time. That makes sense. Will, you had a question. Yeah, no, just just to build on that, you know, uh, Justin talked about going back to college and his thirst for knowledge and understanding how important that is for us to grow. Um, you know, I'm an older person that's 63 years old and I met Justin, uh, you know, when I was trying to help guys out to get into the United Shores League, one of my former teammates, Paul Nochi, introduced me to him and I had unbelievable comment conversations with Justin and he was teaching me things that make were making me better as a as an evaluator and as a coach and trying to help people get better and 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 that's you know the bridge that we need to build in baseball where people put their egos down and realize and then you know I introduced them to Mark and you know Mark read some of his things and you know, I mean, you know, Mark and I are supposedly the old guys that just sit around and yell at the clouds, but we're not. We're the guys who are always looking to try to help people become better and, and to do our jobs better. No, I can attest that you guys do that for me on a daily basis with the people you put me in contact with and, and just the conversations, just just true, genuine uh, baseball people and always looking to get better. Mark, go ahead. You wanted to. Yeah, I thought uh, I was very interested when you were talking about having these pictures on your walls and stuff because I've collected pictures for my entire career of guys. <laughs> and, and I always focused on uh, sequence shots when I could get them of guys that lasted a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, just to see, and I'm a, a firm believer that, you know, you have a lot of different guys with different force. But there's certain things that are, they all have in common are the guys that last a long time. And, uh, you know, like Nolan Ryan, I always, I always, people used to ask me about Nolan Ryan because I've seen him pitch many, many times, even when I played. Um, the one thing about Nolan Ryan, and everybody goes, well, you know, he's a freak. He's got extra special 
uh, strength that other people don't have. He does. He does. But it doesn't matter if you mechanics aren't right. And I don't even like to talk to mechanics. It's it's, it's what the how the delivery flows. And uh, I have some sequences of him that are just like unbelievable. And people don't realize, you know, just prior to release, what a position he put himself in, not only to maximize his physical strength, but maximize the direction he was going and uh, and and be able to throw extra special type of velocity into his freaking, what was he, 50? It was ridiculous. And uh, But I've, I went through, I've had photos, like you said, I collected them of all the top pitchers and I focused on guys that pitch for like 14 to 20 years. Right. See the, the things. And I'm really glad to find someone who's really analyzed it and had the time to analyze those kind of things, you know, with today's tools. Well, uh, Justin, from those pictures, who, who did you, we mentioned Sandy Koufax, Mark Nolan Ryan, who are some of the guys that you looked at that had optimum deliveries? And if it's, I don't know if it's okay, maybe who were some guys you looked at and said, Oh boy, there, there's some problems there. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, during the time that I was doing this, I mean, we were kind of fresh off the, the lightning bolts and picture perfect mechanics of, you know, the Carrie Woods and uh, Mark Pryors and you get into the the Matt Harveys of the world and, you know, promising young arms that end up getting hurt. And, you know, for me, you know, on a simplistic level, there was two guys that, let me, let me backtrack just a little bit. When I was with the Dodgers and we had at the time when I was there, Hiroki Kuroda and Takashi Saito were pitchers and they would go through their routines before we all went through our routines as a group. Now this is in spring training, but I remember watching them move at the time and Kuroda on our scale would be anywhere from like a 19 to a 20 DVS score. So very high. And I said, man, he, you know, he just definitely looks different. Right. And I, and I couldn't really quantify it or intelligently speak about it at the time, but I knew it was different. And then going back and looking at him, I was like, well, there's why. And it was just a beautiful thing to look at. And he's a, also a testament of durability. But you got Mariana Rivera, you got Kuroda, and you got big high power guys like Seaver or Goose Gossage. You know, there's just so much to like and start to look at. And although from like the fan perspective, we look at it and we start to say, oh, man, all those guys look different. They're still achieving some commonality in how they do it. You know, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, any of us in the pitching world have had conversations with is, oh, there's there's no one way to throw the ball. And you're right. There's so many different complexities that go into it of feel and movement and tempos. But joints are joints and bones are bones. And it's like we have the ability, if we understand sequencing well enough, that we can add our rhythm, we can add our style, we can have some different movement patterns, but we can still check some foundational boxes that help us along the way. Hey, Justin, um, uh, like one one of the deliveries to me that always stuck out for connectivity, athleticism, and flow, and was probably a little bit in your era, well, for quite a while, was John Smoltz. Oh, yeah. You know, Smoltz just, you know, the way his butt cheek lifted into balance, and but he kept his shoulder straight, and, and he, he was just always on time. And the ball just effortlessly jumped out of his hands. 
and there was no quantification or high level intelligence for me to figure out. But I knew when I saw it, I go, wow, that's different. That's different than everybody else who, when, you know, you go watch and guys are fighting themselves, you see all the time, especially when they're struggling, throwing strikes and, you know, they're inconsistent with their release on their breaking ball. So like those little things always stuck out to me. And then you mentioned Kuroda and a lot of those Asian pitchers who it's, it's different, but there's, there's a connectivity to it because they do it so much too. No, absolutely. And I think you're right on the nose with uh, Smoltz because, I mean, he was a power arm that logged a lot of innings for a number of years and had a lot of success. And although, yes, he had surgery, he came back and reinvented himself as a closer. But, you know, that's kind of how it should work, right? Like you have a lot of years and a lot of innings and then you break down and then you can get a surgery. We can come right back and, and get right into the mix, right? And, you know, I do I, – every once in a while I'll post – uh, the numbers about Tommy John himself, where he threw like 2,200 innings, had surgery, and came back and threw another 2,400 or something. You know, it's just remarkable, but that's why you get it. You don't get it as a product to one throw harder or, well, I'm just, you know, I'm part of the pitching culture now, so I know I'm going to get it at some point. I might as well get it early. Because, you know, as we all know, not every pitcher comes out of that surgery the same no. pitcher from a physical perspective, but maybe even more so from a mental perspective. And that's, um, that, that's a huge fallacy. You yes. Know, that, oh, you know, I've heard people in meetings, let's just get everybody a Tommy John when we sign them. I'm like, what are you crazy? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, he just, you know, it just goes to the point to where, Injuries happen. They just don't have to happen so earlier in the career where it may derail your career or, you know, you have to basically try to push through it to a point where you're just not the same guy. That's good. Mark, Mark you, I know you had a list of questions for Justin. Why don't you hit him up with, with your next one? Yeah, um, you know, I'm really interested in, in discussing your delivery value scoring system. And some of the areas that you you really studied to to come up with that. Yeah, sure. I think that like as I mentioned about the Colfax thing with that back leg driving down the slope of the mound, matching the slope of the mound. You know, when we stand on top of that rubber, we know that there's a set distance to home plate. There's a there's a slope of the mound. The strike zone is ever so big, right? There's some some control there. There's some set variables, and like I mentioned. We have this human body to which our job is to throw a baseball over the plate, get it out. And when I started to look at that, you know, in building the delivery value system, I kind of worked off that functional approach of it. In addition, using that historical perspective. But by no means was I this renowned biomechanist um, that was looking at this. But also, which I think is an important piece, is if I'm going through a movement, because I had the ability to throw a ball at a high level, wrong, of course, I could still manipulate my body and feel certain muscles turn on and kind of be my own guinea pig at that time. You know, so what I started to see was that how we start that sequence is the most important thing that we can ultimately do. Because when you decide to start to shift the momentum forward towards the plate, your foot is the first thing in the ground, up from that's the knee, then the hip, and then obviously we start to go. And it's 
if our back leg and our, our legs are their drivers, but our upper body can remain fluid and loose, but not tense and not a main driver, and we're not overly focused on it, it will start to build in rhythm and flow and sequence of what our lower body is going to do. Because ultimately, we have to have the rear hip turn to turn the pelvis to help the throwing arm come up right at foot strike. And that's really a huge foundation that's not actually done well. And there's so much now different training methods or insight into biomechanics that look at joint angles and forces. But it's like, well, what actually helps us deliver a ball on time over a long history of time? And so that's where I started to look at. So the back leg, the role in the beginning in that sequence is so key. But then that orientation and flow of that upper body, that torso moving in combination with the throwing arm coming up to foot strike is key. And, and one really, really important factor is you could be kind of hunched over like a Randy Johnson. You could throw low three quarter or you could be, you know, arch back into extension like a Verlander. We don't really want to quite go far as back as like a Hideo Nomo. A lot of listeners may not even know him anymore, but it's the spine in relation to the form. They have to kind of match and be parallel with each other. And I didn't know that when I was playing, but it also has to be a product of the hip moving that throwing forearm into that position. And if those things happen, that's one of the biggest reductions in, in, in overall injuries that we can have as a pitcher. And the reason that we know that is because we have over 2,500 pitchers in our data set with those same correlations and commonalities um, that help us illustrate that. You know, so we know that certain movements equate to more risk or less risk as a combination of us plugging those variables into this model. So the beginning of the delivery is so important of how we start that movement. And if we do it really, really well in the beginning, as we start to flow down the delivery, things will naturally start to sync up for that. And there's one last point of the delivery I want to comment on, because when I was doing this most recent study, I'm seeing less and less of it. But after ball release, when the throwing arm is going to continue accelerating towards home plate, but our body and our upper body is starting to decelerate, right? So we still need a stable lower half to allow this deceleration of the trunk and the arm. But if the throwing forearm starts to extend to that opposite side hip, that glove side hip, and the torso starts to become parallel with the ground after the release of the ball, a pitcher can decrease his overall injury risk by like 20%. But we're not seeing that to where the shoulder, the capsule, the elbow, it's probably 45 degrees above that parallel line and guys aren't ever fully decelerating. And the only reason we can ask why is, well, maybe they don't know it's a, um, a big statistic or they may be doing it for other reasons. Maybe it's feel, we don't know, but that's one of the things that we started to see as a product of the delivery value system is just how important, yes, how important that initial sequence is, but really it's also, we got to finish it well too. So that's, those are really great points. And I think, I think our listeners can get a lot out of that, you know, and we're all trying to get people durable, last longer and injury free. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's not a big deal. Um, 
it can become a bigger deal once a guy's been doing it his whole career. He's in the major leagues. And if you're a major league pitching coach like I was, sometimes there's things that you can't really do to fix the guy because, you know, he's in a in a situation where you've got to win the games and he's been doing it for a long time. That's why these kind of ideas are really important for younger players. People start their careers out to where they can understand, you know, how to stay healthy. Right. You've got to. You've got an MVP program for young players, which which sounds really interesting to me, for for throwing program for learning how to to have your arm work in the right way. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. And I began to develop the MVP program a little bit at the same time that I was building out the delivery value system, but it really wasn't until we got to the USPBL in 16, where we started to formulate it into more of a objective formalized process. And, you know, MVP stands for mechanics for velocity and performance. And I, in the beginning, I was kind of hesitant to even put velocity in there because I just wasn't this velocity uh, nut, right? But what we started to see in 2016 and 17 is that if I never mentioned velocity to any of our pitchers, but I just focused on sequencing, health, recovery, repeatability, feel, that we were starting to get gains in ball velocity as a product of working on these things. And, you know, that just goes to a testament if, you know, I have a, a much better sequence, I don't have to theoretically work as hard to get that average level of performance, whether it be average fastball velocity, because my body's really helping me do it. And so that's kind of where this started. And, and how it breaks down very quickly is as you go through the MVP program, we're going to focus on the phases of the delivery that correlate back to that DVS score, that delivery value system, to where your body is hitting those checkpoints about the movement, which are going to allow us to decrease injury, but also build this this load, this potential load of energy in the body to help maximize our performance, right? So if we can start to do these things and understand them and feel them, but most importantly, have a knowledge of how they work, that's the root of how our program starts. And once we start to get to where we're consistent in the program, then we're able to, what we call, we can go a little faster. We can add a little bit, bit more, but not before the foundation has been built. In the foundation to build it, it doesn't necessarily take a great deal of time, but you just have to understand what we're asking you to do before you kind of really go off and do it. You know, and so that's the, the foundation, but we're ultimately trying to, the goal and the purpose of the program is to allow any thrower or pitcher just to achieve that longevity and in-game success as long as their career and however high that level may be for them um, as long as possible. And if we can help facilitate that or be one spoke in that wheel, you know, great. We've accomplished our mission, but that's really how it works. Yeah, that, yeah. I, I just wanted to add, you know, um, I think back and correlate the basic things that I was talking foundational things. And uh, I can remember uh, Mark. Mark was the pitching coordinator talking to young pitchers about, you know, uh, you know, get yourself into a good rhythm, uh, stay online, make pitches, follow the catcher. Not, nothing about it was about velocity, 
But when all those things happen and you start to do that, then your velocity increases without effort. And kids, I don't think, realize that. There's so much effort going to, to achieve velocity now that you could achieve with less effort when you do things right and you're doing things properly, foundationally. Yeah, very well said there, Will. You know, I think I, yeah, these are really good points, and, and I, you've already covered some of this on when you see some of the common things with good pitchers that stay durable. Um, you know, the one thing that, that uh, you know, we're kind of a society where people want quick fixes and they, they don't understand doing the right thing over and over and over and over again will increase your success, increase your durability, increase your strength, your command, your feel of the ball. People want quick fixes. They want to be told through analytics, if you do this or you have this spin rate or, or you throw from this angle, they can't see the ball. Well, you know, there are certain things you should learn yourself. Mm-hmm. And having said that, what do you think, like, I know we covered some of it, but what are the some of the common things that you see with good pitchers that stay durable? Yeah, so I think that one quick point in that is you make such a great point that the higher up you get in levels, the harder it is to potentially get someone to change something, right? And change is a big word. But more importantly, it's all about trust and trying to communicate a perceived value. And that's where I'll segue to the point about what I see. You know, when I talk to pitchers, especially high level pitchers, I said, look, you know, don't you want to play for a long time and help your team and, you know, make a a good deal of money? You know, that's probably some motivation there. Right. So if you do, there are some things that the best pitchers have proven that they do. And I think the one thing that's not necessarily in the delivery value system, but some of the best, like if you look at a Verlander or Kershaw and a Scherzer who still now are still doing it. They still rank at the top of our system. And they're still some of the best starting pitchers in the game. And they're all over 35. Kershaw might be 34. I'm not sure. But their process has stayed pretty consistent throughout their career. And one of the things is, you know, let's say that I, I, I have this success mechanism that I've been doing. Well, to bring something new in, it really has to go through a pretty high level of filtration. And I really have to vet it because does it make sense for what I'm trying to do? I think a lot of young pitchers, they're just trying to jump to the next thing that their buddy has done or that what they heard about may allow them to have some success without really understanding what goes into that success. And I think there's a big gap there. And so some of the best in the world are confident. They stick to their process. They allow it to happen and they don't stray too much, but they just so happen to have some common commonalities too. So, you know, it goes back to the best pitchers. They get down the mound. Well, they get to that foot strike with their throw and forearm and their, their posture being in position and they stay directional towards the plate, you know? So it's where the ball going into the zone, it's always looking like a strike the hitter has to say, yes, I have to make a swing. So there's contact there. And then the, whether the ball stays in the strike zone or goes out of the strike zone, they're pitching to contact, they're using their stuff, and they're allowing to themselves to progress inning after inning 
um, throughout the, the season, which allows them just to continue to do their job year after year. Well, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's, you know, those are, the point is for me is that you get kids that want to be, they want to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. And that that's a big part of being a good coach is to help help a player understand what he is. You know, is he a power pitcher? Is he a breaking ball pitcher? You know, how much force does he really have? What type of pitcher does he have to be? Um, where his strengths are? Uh, how to improve your weaknesses, but never forget about your strengths. You know, I've had guys that got so concerned about learning something new that they didn't maintain what they did best. Mm, yeah. That's that's what coaches have to do. And, uh, you know, and I think it's really important that when you're teaching young players is that, you know, uh, know what a good one feels like, go to, know what a good one, good one looks like through the view, your eyes and through the coach who knows how you should be doing it properly. That's um, uh... Um, I'm sorry, Justin. I just wanted to, to, to add something, but go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say that's, that's such a great point. You know, I uh, posed a question to Dan O'Dowd or a thought to him in 2008, and it's 14 years ago. I said, uh, I think I could revolutionize pitching in baseball. He said, how? You know, Dan's a very bright, very progressive thinker. I said, get rid of the radar gun. Take <laughs> it away from our scouts. Take it away from our ballparks, take it away from everything, go back to the foundations of being a fundamentally sound pitcher that gets people out and promote people who, not who throw hard, but people, and like, you know, in hopes that some way that the toothpaste that was already out of the tube was going to come back, and it's not because we've added spin rate and other things that people are now chasing and ignoring all the foundational things that your your program does and that are actually going to make you a better pitcher. It's not the shiny object of a high-velocity, high-spin-rate pitch. It's a pitch that's made, a good pitch that's made. Yep. Well, and that is, you know, to your point there, Will, is this, this mindset, it starts so early now, and it's – whether I'm 12 years old and I go to this big travel ball tournament and I get my name on a press release or I get ranked you know, in the top 10, you know, the easiest way for them to rank or profile somebody as being better than the next guy is higher velocity. And it starts there. And then it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's, well, I got to get more velocity because if I do that, my ranking goes up. And if my ranking goes up, I get more college opportunities. If I get more college opportunities, I get more potential draft opportunities. Yeah. And it just keeps going. And we lose sight of what makes some pitchers more successful than others. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, you know, uh, I was sitting with Brian Harvey uh, about a month before his son had ended up having Tommy John and he was a really good looking young pitcher, uh, Hunter. And he said, well, you know what it's like (laughs) to, like have a time clock knowing my son's going to have Tommy John really soon because he's been trying to throw too hard for too long. And, you know, he couldn't relate that, but the only way he was going to get drafted high and get a high bonus was because he was throwing hard. There was, you know, there used to be a projectability to a high school pitcher 
Well, he's 18. He's 88 to 92. By the time he's 21, 22, he's going to have more than enough fastball. And that was enough instead of keep chasing that higher number. Every time there's a higher number, somebody keeps chasing it. And, but we have more injuries now than we've ever had. So in, in the long run, I think we're insane. We're, we're chasing. <laughs> well, the, the, the industry has caused it by putting such a high value on velocity. Yeah. You know, you know Michael Kay during the playoffs last week, uh, they were they were talking about a pitcher who had just thrown a pitch 99 or something and turned around and looked at the board. And he made the comment. He said, I, I, you know, and, and he's a big numbers guy, but he said, I just can't believe how many guys still peak at boards. I mean, with all yeah. the data that's out there, you're in the middle of a game trying to get outs in a playoff and you want to know how hard you're throwing? How about having an idea where to throw the next pitch? Yeah. And on that, on that uh, point, Justin, I've got a question for you. Uh, you know, this, this didn't happen overnight. No. And, uh, you know, it, it started, I mean, it, you, you know, it goes back to is that, you know, we've talked about this too before. Well, uh, years ago when they brought the aluminum bats in to play. Yeah. yeah. You know, everybody wouldn't back forever. Guys, everybody used to so there was always a value and an understanding that you could actually break a bat and you could pitch inside and it would open, out, it would open the pitch away. Um, you know, but then they brought aluminum bats in that didn't break and guys could fist balls that weren't very strong and just over the infield. And uh, other guys would hit balls. They actually had to, they had to slow the bats down. I don't remember what happened, but I remember they had a big thing. Yeah. I, oh, yeah. That's... Some kid got killed or something, a bat at 120 miles an hour off the right. bat. Right. I mean, yeah. these people that manufacture this stuff, they don't know what the result will be until it happens. You know, uh, going back to the radar gun, I, I spent a five-day series in Syracuse with – and I'll give the names and Mark will know who they are, but most people won't. I was with Tom Giordano, uh, Joe McDonald, Al Widmar, um, uh, gosh, uh, Buddy Kerr, and uh, the guy uh, Mel Didier. You're talking about close to 230 years of scouting and baseball experience. And this was in the early 90s, um, doing AAA. And, you know, they, they said, Will, did you bring a gun? I go, yeah, I brought one. And, and they, we started talking. And they said, I lost I've never... you, Will. Oh. Hello? You there, Will? I'll yeah, can you hear me? I'll pick up from here for Will. Yeah, I don't know where yeah. Will. So, can you hear me? Justin, with your program now. Oh, I uh, he's gonna have to make that point again. Oh, can you guys hear me? <laughs> well, while he's done, I can tell uh, one. Justin, we get, we get I say maybe two uh, quick stories that relate to velocity and, and kind of growing up. And you know, when I was coming up, I mean, this was '97 through 2000, going into high school, going into college. You know, I don't know if I had any coach tell me, you know, Justin, you got to throw harder. I mean, I always had one of the better arms on the team and growing up, I largely threw, you know, one of the hardest in the league or whatever. And I think in high school, I was probably 87 to 91 going into my senior year. And um, when I stepped foot on campus at George Washington, 
you know what miraculously happened? I still was physically maturing and I probably put on 15 pounds and all of a sudden in the spring, I was 91 to 93. And uh, it was kind of this natural evolution of velocity. And I tell everybody that when I was recruited out of high school in Old Dominion at the time was one of the first schools to contact me and was talking about being on campus and providing a scholarship. And I remember they called like the first day they could offer and I said, well, you know, Justin, we actually, we offered another pitcher and gave him the, the bigger contract. He's up in the Richmond area and, you know, they ended up being Verlander. And, um, you know, but at that time as an 18 year old, you know, Verlander wasn't throwing 95 out of high school as a potential and future 100 miles per hour pitcher. And we both kind of got into our freshman year of college and matured and threw harder. And then you get to our sophomore years of college and playing in the Pan Am games. And, you know, we were roommates and we were also catch partners every day. And I realized, and it goes back to our point of trying to focus on who you are and not always try to be somebody that you're not, that I, I just didn't have that arm talent that Verlander did, and nor should I try to. And when we would back up and play long toss, I, there's just, I couldn't spin the ball like he could, and I couldn't get it there like he could. And I just knew that that's, that's just pure arm talent, and that's some of the best stuff that you'll ever see. But this, the strengths that I had, I had to focus on those. And in any given day, I might be able to beat a Verlander going head-to-head if I just focus and utilize my strengths. One of those uh, strengths. Yeah, it's, you know, I got a question that's for the thing. You right can't chase somebody else. You just got to know what you can do. You know, it's funny, you know, we were talking about, you know, trying to be yourself, but there are, you can learn things from other people and it fits with you. I remember one that really hit me was uh, Charlie Morton. Mm-hmm. Charlie Morton, um, he always had really good stuff and people were always saying this guy, you know, this guy's really good. He gets hurt some, but you know, he just, you know, just not, not consistent. And I remember he copied Roy Holiday's delivery, probably <laughs> as good as any pitcher ever copied another pitcher's delivery. Now he morphed into his own again after that, but I think it actually helped turn him around because he became much more consistent. I mean, I remember seeing him uh, when he was Pittsburgh and I went in and I'd seen him before and I went in there and see him this one year and I'm going, Oh my gosh, it's Roy holiday. And all the scouts were talking about it. They said, you ever seen a guy that could like morph himself into another guy, and, <laughs> but it actually helped him. Yeah. Really helped. He's still pitching to this day and doing a hell of a job. Yeah, he is. Um, can you guys hear me? Yeah, I was no. wondering, um, you know, I know you did a little study on the starting pitchers in this year's playoffs. Um, you know, can you give us a little bit of what you found, what seemed to be common, um, you know, all those kind of things? Sure. So just so the audience knows, I mean, every year uh, we try to stay up to date on all the major league pitchers. And, you know, usually once the season's over, we go and update all the numbers and, and add in our additional DVS scores. But I just thought as like a small sample, you know, going into the playoffs, which you typically have your best teams and consistent of the best teams. You usually have some some of the pitchers who had great years. And in this case was the same that we saw in this playoff. So I wanted to just go through and profile um, 
I think it was a total of 70 pitchers that are eligible to pitch in the playoffs amongst the teams. Now, not all of them will pitch in the playoffs, um, but we can see patterns. And you know, one thing that I mentioned since we've started doing this back in 2014, that by and large, every way you slice it, the average DVS score for every pitcher that we've scored is right around 14. And typically starters are usually a little bit better than relievers. Um, in terms of the overall score. But the 14 is kind of that magic number. And so I just wanted to see how close uh, this group was. And this overall was closer to 12. So there was a, a reduction in the average score. But when you start to go through it and you start to look at some patterns of now some of the younger pitchers, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the start of the delivery. There's some different training techniques. There's some different starts. The arm has become much more controlled, more manipulative. It's a shorter arm path. It's a much more aggressive, dominant upper half in terms of the acceleration of the trunk and the ball release. So we're starting to see the training that's manifested to get guys to throw harder show up in the delivery. And we, we're seeing snapshots of that here in this study. But we're also seeing guys like Verlander and Kershaw and um, Scherzer with their age to continue to hold steady in their delivery patterns and continue to be successful. And um, so there's great, great correlations everywhere. And uh, when you start putting, you know, certain metrics behind it, um, you start to find some cool correlations. I mean, one we found was um, pitchers with a uh, DBS score of 16 or higher this year had a war of 3.75 versus pitchers who are 11 or lower or like 1.25, you know, so whether or not that stays true down the road, I don't know. But I think the largest thing that we just want to learn from it is, is any given year, regardless of score, anybody can have a great stellar year. But when you start to run that simulation over five years, seven years, 10 years, it's just the, the, the pitchers who have those higher scores, they'll just be able to continue that level of in-game success and durability for longer. No, that's great. Those are great points. You know, it's funny uh, in dealing with players throughout my career, um, you know, you're always fighting guys that that don't want to try something new. Um, or they'll throw, you know, you show a new grip and the guy will throw through two pitches and he says, uh, I don't like that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't yeah. feel right. You know, you know, to me, you know, there's there's a saying about, uh, you know, anything's hard until you learn how to do it. You know, and, and there's so many kids in today's society that just want to quit because it, does, it isn't easy. You know, it's uh, it's like uh, Thomas Edison said, that many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. And, and we have a lot of that going on. And I think good coaches, they try to find ways and relationships with players to get them to stay with something long enough to at least get a good evaluation of it. Yeah, that's very well said. I mean, I, if, you, if you're in the trenches with the players, so to speak, you know they, it's easy to get met, met with resistance in some conversation, especially when they've experienced success. And there's confidence there. There could be an ego there. 
And as a coach, we're just, we just want to help. Right. And I don't think I've ever had a pitcher, uh, make a, a change, um, without me having them understand what I'm asking them to do or showing them. And it becomes a trust thing. It becomes a rapport thing, but you know, it's all to help them. And we just want to see them succeed and we want them to be able to do this. Um, and we have to kind of check our own ego and it's just like, look, we want to help you. And if these things can help great, sometimes it's not always that way and, and that's okay. Um, but all we can do is just kind of give them, um, the best we have to offer. Well, you know, it's always, it's the boots on the ground, you know, it's the, it's, it's, you know, we've often said that when people watch games from the stands or front office people that are up in their boxes and stuff, you know, the game seems way easier the farther away from the field you get. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, and that's why sometimes people get frustrated with coaches or managers and stuff, but, you know, they don't understand what you're, what you're dealing with uh, on a particular day with a player Um you know, I'll go back to with analytics. I, I heard an interview with Jack McKeon, who I coached for. And it was on MLB, and somebody asked Jack what about analytics, and he said, uh, he said, well, you know, I think it's got a place. I think there's good statistics. I've used them. Uh, there's analysis that I think are important. But he says, you know, it can't tell you whether your shortstop broke up with his girlfriend last night. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, those are the kind of things that on-field people, coaches, managers, that we deal with but don't necessarily broadcast because it's not something you would ever broadcast to anybody, but it may help you and make it a decision on that day. That's right. You know, um, you know it's, it's, it's complex, but it isn't. It's common sense. It's, it's being a pitching coach and being an optimistic pessimist. You know, you hope for the best, you plan for the worst. Right. You know, just so you're on top of your game. And I think that people have to have to realize that, that, I mean, players have to understand that coaches aren't trying to mess with anybody. They're trying to make you better. Right. And, uh, you know, often with crutches that players have today with their, with their, uh, their agents, that that are getting you know they're they're paid by them so they're not going to tell a player you know you're being unreasonable you know this guy's just trying to help you no they're going to call the general manager and tell him that this coach or this manager's not handling me the right way as if he would try to handle you in the wrong way because all that does is jeopardize his, his own job right yeah it's um, um it's it's difficult being a, a coach you know at that higher level and um, I think that, you know, the, the game from the expectations um, from players, I mean, it's changed and they have all the technology and data and analytics to kind of go through as well. But, you know, it's like I recently wrote an article about traditional baseball wisdom versus the analytics. And it's sometimes in the game, we all have heartbeats and we have to listen to it. And a player can come off the field or is about to go on that bat and whether it's the bench coach or the manager, he could just say one thing, you know, that could ease his mind, give him confidence. It's there's no data. It's no analytic whatsoever, but all of a sudden he ends up going two for two and drives run in and improves those data points, which it had nothing to do with really looking at the data. It had everything to do with listening to the person, which ends up 
I like to say, manipulating the data, right? But if you don't have those trusted voices in the dugouts and on the field, you know, a lot of that stuff is really hard to understand if you're just sitting from that outside perspective. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, you want the player to be aware of certain things because some of the things they can take care of once they're aware of them. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you, if you realize that you're going from 02 to 32 at a way high percentage and you may not know it until your coach tells you. And he goes, oh, man, I, I got to start focusing on make better pitches once I get 0-2 on the guy because I don't want to run to 3-2. But if you don't say anything to him, sometimes I'll just keep trying to be too nasty or too careful and, and running the count out. All he had to do was know, know that he was doing that. Yep. Justin, where's the disconnect? Well, I think uh, I think this has been a really good show. I'm really glad we had you, and I, I'd love to have you on again. I know we've, we're wearing you out. You were on a different podcast, and now you've been on ours. But I think you have some really great value to to your company and what you do as as a as a leader um, that can be beneficial to baseball, particularly as a guy moves up trying to get into professional baseball. Well, I appreciate that, Mark. And uh, I'm always happy to jump on here with you guys and, and talk pitching. I mean, I love to do it. Well, thanks Justin, again. Dave, you there? I'm here. Yep, Justin, thanks for coming on. Looks like we lost Dave too. I don't know. Well. No, it's, it's the, it's the uh, Justin and Mark show. <laughs> well, it has been a pleasure, Mark, and I uh, appreciate okay, well, your I'm time. Gonna text, I'm going to text Dave because he's going to end up editing this. Um. I don't know what's going on with the, the there. You can't hear me, Mark. Maybe it's the whole East Coast, except for down here where I live. Well, he might have been trying to help Will get back on. He might be. Oh.